The following podcast is a recording from the sermon ministry of Faithway Baptist Church in Leesburg, Virginia. Our prayer is that this message will be used by God to help you in your daily walk with Him. If you have your Bibles this morning with you, if you could take them and turn to the book of Isaiah, please. Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. And we have been going through these two, uh, this book together since I think it was September when we started. And we are, Lord willing, going to finish this book today. And so it's been a long journey as we've gone through this. Not verse chapter by chapter. We've got hit most of the major chapters in this book. And today we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 65. In verses 16 through the end of the chapter, or through the end of chapter 66. And if you were with us last week, we talked a little bit about heaven and we talked about hell. And uh, it's never a comfortable thing for a pastor to get up and say, thus saith the Lord. If you don't trust Christ as your Savior, you're going to spend forever in the lake of fire. But it's the truth of God's word. And God's word does not change. It is absolute. And so either you believe in absolutes or if you believe the new absolutes that are taught in our culture today, there is no such thing as truth. Our foundation as a church family and as individuals must be the word of God. That, that is the basis for our belief system. And so if you have a struggle with a doctrine that's in the Bible, man, my prayer is that you would talk to God about that and you would search the scriptures and find out what the Bible has to say. Today is a, again, we're picking up, we're talking about heaven and we're going to talk about hell. And it's not an easy thing to talk through, but it's the truth of God's word. And so my prayer today is if you do not know Jesus Christ as your savior, that you will call upon the name of the Lord. Last week, a teenage boy put his faith in Christ, trust in Christ after the service. And that was really neat to see that happen. And, and you know, if you're here and you don't know Christ, today could be the day of salvation for you. If you are a Christian, and as we sang all of these songs this morning about Christ is our hope and our light in life and death, and hallelujah, what a savior. And if your heart resonated between you and God this morning, and, and you know that you're a Christian, there's no doubt in your mind, if you were to die today, you go to heaven. This morning, you're going to see a picture of what life is going to be like under the reign and rule of Jesus Christ. And some of the most incredible chapters in the Bible describing the new kingdom one day. And so this is a really neat passage of scripture. I can't wait to dig into it together. Isaiah chapter 65, we saw last week and looked at some different passages of scripture, how the sin of Adam and Eve corrupted everything, right? All the way down to the core of humanity. And from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, it was evident that they were not right with God anymore because they realized that they were naked and without clothes and they tried to hide themselves in shame before the presence of God. Ultimately, Cain killed Abel. And then the Bible tells us that every man did that which was right in his own eyes and people did abominable things in the sight of the Lord and so God had to ultimately bring judgment through Noah. The flood came, the world was destroyed and not just humans, but every single air-breathing animal was killed Due to, except for the two that Noah saved of each kind, due to the fact that humans sinned. The, the pain-filled existence that you and I live in has become, is, is a part of the sin culture that was brought on by Adam and Eve. And yet, every single person that has ever lived has longed for a place in which there is a utopia, a place where there is no more sin. The Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes that God has imprinted it on the hearts of man, a desire for eternity. P Plato, Plato wrote a, a, a work called The Republic. It was written 370 BC. It's one of the earliest attempts in literature that we know of to capture the desire for a perfect society and is considered a, an early example of a search for a golden age. 
150 years prior to the birth of Christ, there was a Greek uh, merchant who wrote a book called The Island of the Sun, in which he describes this utopian island somewhere in the eastern sea that is mystical and where there is no death and everything is golden and beautiful. In 421 AD, there was a Chinese writer who wrote a fable called The Peach Blossom Spring, in which a fisherman, he stumbles upon this perfect village while sailing up a river, and it, it, the river is surrounded on both sides by peach blossoms. The fisherman discovers this village. He lives in this perfect place for a long time, his friendly inhabitants. And then when he tries to go back home to be with his family, much to his chagrin, he can't find it, this utopian society, once again. He, he, he wants to go back to this place. In 1516, Sir Thomas More, he introduced the term utopia to the English language by writing a book of the same name. The term utopia literally means no place. If you look it up in the dictionary, that's what it means. No place. Why? Because there is no such place as utopia. But Moore was inspired in 1516 to write his book uh, about some island that was in the Caribbean. Remember, Christopher Columbus had just discovered the New World in 1492, or they say he did. I don't know what the truth is anymore. But Christopher Columbus, 1492, 1516, he writes his book, Utopia. And that work was later expanded upon by different authors and Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, H.G. Wells wrote several stories about, you know, set on other planets, perfect places. I say all that this morning to say this. There has been a search for all of the humanity ever since man was created and fell into sin to explore the cosmos and find this perfect place. As I said, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. But the idea of paradise, a sense of a perfect place that is free from the curse of sin, you and I will never find it. Some people today are looking for it in, the outer, in outer space, right? Someone said, well, you think there's aliens out there? No, I don't. And I could give you a lot of biblical reasons why I don't believe that there is extraterrestrial life out there. But ultimately, the reason why, or ultimately in America, we're going to keep searching as long as we have money to spend. We'll keep sending all of these radio signals up into outer space looking for artificial or life up there because we think that there might be some perfect utopia out there. We're looking forward to something that's besides this earth. Well, this morning, I'd like to see us uh, from, the, from God's word. I'd like us to see a perfect world that is beyond our imagination. I'd like to see a vision that Isaiah had of this place that God is going to create one day. If you look at your Bibles, Isaiah 65, and I don't have the words on the screen this morning for the verses, so please open up your Bible, or if you have a phone, pull it out and follow along, because we're going to be reading a lot of text here this morning, and it's very important that you see the words in front of you if you can. In Isaiah chapter 65 and verse number 16, uh, verse 17 rather, For behold, God says, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. God says there in verse number 17, I am going to create all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 18, but ye be ye glad and rejoice for an, and that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now, what follows in verses 20 through 25 is not technically a description of the new heavens and the new earth, but it's going to be a description of what we call the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, because you'll see in verse number 20 that people will die. Look at verse 20. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner of being a hundred years old shall be accursed. 
Now this morning, I don't have a ton of time to go into this, but the Bible tells us the timeline of future events. We believe that at any moment the trumpet could sound. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Any moment Jesus Christ could return, the trumpet will sound. Those that are saved, we believe, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That, that's what we refer to as the rapture of the church. The church will be caught up together. And then, during that time period upon which we're, after that we've been, the church has been caught away, there will be a seven-year tribulation period upon planet Earth, unlike the world has ever seen before. It'll be a time of pestilence, disease, of war, of famine, of earthquakes. It, it, the, the wrath of God is going to be poured out upon planet Earth. And during the time of the Great Tribulation, the Bible tells us in Revelation that three-quarters of the Earth's population will be destroyed. And so, let's just say it happens in a few years. We get to the 10 billion mark here in America, or in the world. That means that 2.5 billion people will survive the Great Tribulation. Now, a lot of people will be dead, but a good number of people will still be alive. And they will enter into the Millennial Kingdom when Jesus comes back down from Jerusalem, or back down to Jerusalem. He will set up his throne in what we call the Millennial or the Thousand Year Reign on Earth. And we that have been caught up together, the church, we will reign and rule with Jesus Christ in that kingdom. That being said, there will be people on planet Earth that survive the tribulation, and they will have babies, and they will have, they, they will have a body that has not been transformed, and so they will have children, and, and they will die. But the Bible says in verse number 20, it seems to indicate that it will be like the time of um, before the days of Noah, where people lived, Methuselah, 969 years old. Uh, it, it's a place that God creates where it's going to be a great existence, and we'll see that a little bit later on. But God creates a, a new heaven and a new earth a little bit later on. That's what we see in Revelation chapter 21 in verse number 1. John the Apostle said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride that's adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. The Bible tells us that God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth one day. Verse number 17, if you look at your text, it says, For the former things shall not be remembered, nor come to mind. Now someone says, well, does that mean that when we get to heaven, we will have no memory about what happened on earth? I don't think that's what that means. Because, I'll give you a biblical example of this, all right? When, when Jesus Christ was on the earth, he took um, Peter, James, and John. They went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Bible tells us that as Jesus was up on that mountain, Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus, and, and they were in their glorified bodies, and yet they were still recognizable to Peter, James, and John. There will be things in the New Jerusalem that will be carried from the Old. The gates of the city of Jerusalem, according to the book of Revelation, are named after the 12 tribes of Israel. The foundation stones of the new city are named after the 12 apostles in Revelation chapter 21, verse number 14. We will remember when we get to heaven. I firmly believe that. However, the memories that we have will no longer cause us pain. When we are in heaven, we'll understand things perfectly. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see through a glass darkly, 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So right now on this earth, we don't see things perfectly as God sees it. And so when tragic things happen to us, there's pain, there's sorrow, but when we get to heaven, we'll see how God has glorified himself and everything, and we will just be rejoicing in the glory of God. Verse 19, God says, And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. Those are very happy words. Do you get the picture here in your mind of God being happy or somber? If you were just to like kind of picture God in your mind, how do you see him? A lot of people see God as a very somber God. Beloved, the Bible says when you get to heaven as a Christian, God will joy over you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord thy God is in the midst of the mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over thee with singing. When you get to heaven one day, what do you think God's going to say? Ah, oh, it's you, Kurt. <laughs> he finally made it. Or is he going to say, yeah, my son, my child has finally arrived home. He's here. That's what the Bible says. God is going to rejoice over you when you get to heaven. Verse number 20, this, got this, the story here continues about the millennial kingdom. It says, the child shall die a hundred years old. When Jesus returns, as I mentioned earlier, the millennial kingdom, there will be two types of people who will enter into that kingdom. Those that have returned with Christ in our glorified bodies. If you're saved, the rapture takes place, you have a new body, your glorified body, and you'll never again experience death. And we'll reign with Christ for those thousand years. But there will be another type of person who will enter into the tribula after the tribulation period. And those are those people that came to know Jesus as their Savior during the tribulation and somehow were able to survive without being martyred. And these people will enter into their kingdom of the kingdom of God in their old bodies. As I said, they will have children and grandchildren and repopulate the earth. And it's these people in verse number 20 that are being described here. During the millennial kingdom, the conditions on earth become similar to those before the flood of Noah when people lived a long time. Because of verse number 22. Look at your Bible there. Isaiah 65 verse 22. It says, And they shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as in the days of a tree, there are the days of my people, and mine effect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. For the days of a tree are the days of my people. Uh, trees oftentimes will live a lot longer than human beings will, right? You know, yesterday, my daughter and I, uh, daughters and I, we went on a daddy-daughter Valentine's Day tea. We took Grace for the first time out and about. Had a great time with her. She slept through most of it. But uh, we were at the Oatlands Plantation there south of Leesburg. And if you've ever had the opportunity to drive around the property there, they have some very old trees. They say are some over 200 years old. And back in the Civil War days, the Confederate soldiers actually occupied Oatlands, and they used that as a camp, as a base. And so if only those big old oak trees could talk, right? What The stories that they could tell us about the things that took place. Well, that seems to be the idea here. All right, trees will often live a lot longer than human beings. And as the days of a tree, so will be the days of the humans that survive the Great Tribulation. They will live long, but there will still be death. Verse number 23. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Verse 24 is an amazing promise, isn't it? God says, before you even call in those days, I will hear and I will answer your prayer. Verse 25 tells us what it's going to be like for the livestock and the pets and the animals on the earth. It says, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. 
Now, I don't know what would happen if we took a wolf and a lamb together, put it into the zoo. Well, I know what would happen, right? You put a lamb into a lion cage, it's not going to last very long, especially if it's a ravenous lion and he's hungry. But in the end days, the Bible says the millennial kingdom, the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. In other words, it seems that the animals will no longer be carnivorous. They're going to be vegetarians, it seems to be. And not only that, but they shall not hunt nor destroy or hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, saith the Lord. So it's going to be a completely different place here on the earth. The, the old order of death and sin is going to be replaced with Jesus Christ on his throne. Are you ready for heaven this morning? I know I am. I look at the world around me and I turn on the news. I'm just discouraged and want, I don't even want to listen to the news, right? I want to just tune out and, and worship the Lord and sing songs of praise to him because it's just so discouraging when you listen to what's going on in the world. Are you ready for heaven? This is describing what it will be like when Jesus is on the throne in Jerusalem one day. Now, let's look at the last book of this great chapter in the Bible, the book of Isaiah, chapter 66. Look at verses 1 and 2. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me and where is the place of my rest? That's a powerful verse right there. In the ancient pagan world, they would often build, the cultures of the world would build temples to their deities. I talked about last week, you go to Athens and you can go to the center of the city, the Acropolis there, and you can see all of these different temples that were built thousands of years ago to all of the different gods that they had in their life. And they, were, they would go to those temples and they would worship those false deities there. But what God is saying here, Solomon realized this truth when he was building the temple. God, you can't actually fit in the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon says, But will God indeed, I think we have the verse on the screen, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Right? Behold the heaven, and heaven the heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. God doesn't choose to look at the person who's expecting him to pay attention just because he goes to a religious place. Let me say it this way. Just because you go to church on Sunday morning, don't expect God to hear you for that reason and that reason alone. Just because you write a check and put it in the offering plate on the way out the door this morning, just because you do a good religious work, whatever that might be, don't expect that to be the reason why God hears your prayer. God instead looks at the person who, look at verse number two, for all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord, but to this man will I look. Who will I hear? Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. God does not look for the Pharisee. God does not look for the religious person. God looks for the person who is poor. The word poor there in the Hebrew means humbled. It means wretched. Someone who is needy. It's the person who recognizes that they have a great need for God in their life. The word contrite in that verse, verse 2, means stricken and smitten. So you have the wretched person who realizes how wicked they are, and they are so smitten and stricken by their sin, they, they're broken over their failings. They realize they have no goodness at all in themselves. And it's that person who calls out to God. That is the person that God will hear. He goes on in verse number 2 to say, I'll listen to the person that trembleth at my word. It, when it says trembles at the word of God, that doesn't mean that you take your Bible 
and, and you know, you, uh, you put the Bible in a glass case for protection, and I love my Bible so much, I'm going to make sure that it's bulletproof glass and nothing will ever happen. It, you take care of God. That's not what it means, right, to take it extremely serious. That, that's not what this verse is saying. It's the person who reads God's word and hears and listens to what he reads. It's a person who shows up on Sunday morning and the Holy Spirit of God steps on his toes through the preaching of God's word. And you know you need to make changes in your life and you make those changes because the Bible tells you to do so. Because thus saith the Lord, I'm going to make those changes. Unfortunately, there are many people who will hear the word of God and God will say, this is what you need to do. And you know that you're supposed to change, but you refuse to change because you don't want to or because circumstances are difficult or whatever the reason might be you give to God. You don't make those changes that you know God requires of you in your life. And my friend, if you refuse to do that and don't tremble at the word of God, you will not see the hand of blessing of God upon your life. Do you want to see an example of someone who trembled at God's word? Can, can I just share this story with you? There was a king in Israel. His name was Josiah. Josiah had a wicked grandfather and a very wicked father that were kings before he was king. They, they ruled the nation of Judah. They were some of the most wicked people, rulers that the, the Israel had ever seen. And by the time Josiah came to the throne at age eight, the spiritual condition of Judah was at an all-time low. But as Judah was growing up, somehow the Lord allowed him to be influenced by godly mentors in the castle. And he began to protect and restore the temple. He thought that was very important for Israel to go back to the religion of their roots. And so he said, let's, let's fix up the temple. Great thing to do. And so the temple at this time had become a disarray. There was false, false worship going on. The, the priests weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And Josiah goes through and he cleans up the temple. And as they were cleaning everything up and throwing away all the trash, they discovered something amazing. They discovered the law of Moses. Now, Josiah had never heard the law of Moses before read to him. He had never heard the word of God. It had been a long time, the Bible said, since the people of God had heard God's word. And so when the Bible, when the law of Moses was found in the temple trash pile, Hilkiah, the priest at that time, sent this scroll to the king. And, and the story takes place, it's a rather lengthy passage. We put it up here on the screen for you. In 2 Chronicles chapter 34, it says, Then Shapen, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath given me a book. And Shapen read it before the king. And it came to pass that when the king heard the words of the law, he rent his clothes. That doesn't mean he went out and rented his clothes. That he tore his clothes, all right? He, he was so moved by what he heard, he tore his clothes in the sign of, uh, I guess it would have been humiliation slash abject repentance towards God. Verse 20 says, And the king commanded Hilkiah and Hikiam the sons of Shepin, and Abdon the son of Micah, and Shepin the scribe, and Isaiah the scribe of the king, saying, verse 21, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for them that are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of this book that is found, for great is the wrath of God that is poured out upon us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do after all that is written in this book. And the Bible says, Hilkiah and Nathan of the king had appointed, went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shilliam, the son of Tikva, the, the, the son of Hashrath, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now she dwelt in Jerusalem at the college. And they spake to her in effect. And she answered them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Tell ye the man that sent, this, sent you to me, um, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the curses that are written in the book, which they have read before the king of Judah. 
because they have forsaken me, and they have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of thy hands. Therefore my wrath shall be poured out upon this place, and shall not be quenched. As for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, that's Josiah, so shall you say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel concerning the words that thou hast heard, because thine heart was tender, and thou didst humble thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, and humblest thyself before me, and didst rend thy clothes and weep before me, I have even heard thee also, saith the Lord. Behold, I will gather to thee thy fathers, and thou shalt be gathered in thy grave in peace. Neither shall thine eyes see all the evil that I shall bring on this place and upon the inhabitants of the same. So they brought the word to the king. They brought the king the word again. Josiah was a man who trembled at God's word. When Josiah, for the first time in his life, he saw God's word, he began to realize just how far the nation of Israel had transgressed against Almighty God. And you read the story. And you find that Josiah continues on there in 2 Chronicles, and he gets extremely serious about following the things of God's word. And he stops all of the junk that had been going on in the nation, all the idol worship, and he turns the people of God once again to Jehovah. He says, look, I may not be able to completely correct the direction the ship is going in, but we're going to slowly try to correct it and bring it right into alignment with the principles of the Bible, of the law of Moses. And that's what he did. That is a man who trembles at the fear of God, at the word of God. My friend, when you read the Bible, God speaks to you. When you hear it preached, when you hear it taught, and God says you need to make changes in your life, do you make those changes? Do you tremble at the word of God, or do you just go on your merry way? Eh, I've been, always, I've been doing this my entire life. I'm just going to keep going on. Do you make the changes that God wants you to make? My friend, choose God's way. Look at verses 3 and 4. It goes on and says, There, he that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation is as he offers swine's blood. Now, verse 3 is describing the various sacrifices that people would make who were supposedly coming to the temple to worship the Lord, but they were making sacrifices that God does not like. These were heathen ways to make sacrifices. Um, blessed as if he blessed an idol, yea, they have chosen their own ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. Verse 4, I will also choose their delusions and bring their feet upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear, but when they did evil before mine eyes and chose that in which I am delighted, not. So, verses 3 and 4 there were people who did not tremble at the word of God. Instead of not trembling and honoring God and obeying him, they chose to go their own direction. When sacrifice is made for the wrong reasons, when sacrifice isn't something that God likes, it becomes something that God hates. Here in verses 3 and 4 is a picture of people who wanted their religion to take care of the God thing in their life. And I'm trying to be as, as uh, diplomatic as I can there, Okay. They, they wanted just to appease God, and every one of us knows that there's a, a creator, there's someone that's out there that made the world, and whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Christian, whatever it is, you know that there is a creator deep down inside, and you want to do something, and so if you're the atheist agnostic, you're going to take care of Mother Earth because you feel like you need to do something good to try to appease whatever karma is out there in the universe. If you're a Christian, you want to worship and you want to serve God because you know that there is a God. And here are the people of Israel in verses 3 and 4 who wanted their religion to take care of this obligation, this God thing obligation in their life, 
but they had no real intention of paying or no real intention of paying attention to what God wanted them to do. Instead, they wanted to do things their way. When you and I come to God, listen, it's so important that we remember you come to God on his terms and not my terms. Some people will come to church on a Sunday morning because they feel guilty about something they did in their previous life. And they, they want to come and do the religious things because that might help them not feel so guilty. They may put money in the offering plate and they say, well, maybe if I you know, give God a little tip, then maybe he won't punish me. If I pay him money, if I bribe God, as if you could do that. Some people think, well, if I read my Bible and I pray, that's a way I can appease God but they really have no intention of turning from their sins. Beloved, God wants your heart. He wants a personal relationship with you. If you're reading your Bible out of fear, if you're reading your Bible because you don't want God to judge you, that's the wrong reason to read your Bible. If you're at church this morning because you're fearing the wrath of God upon your life because you messed up this past week, listen, that's not the reason to come to church. God wants you to change your ways and He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn from your sins so he can have an intimate, personal relationship with you. Are you willing to do that this morning and tremble at the fear of God? Look at verse number five. God continues here. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. All right. So what a contrast. In verse two, God says, I'll listen to he that trembles at the word. Verses three and four, it gives an example of someone that doesn't tremble. But verses five through eight, oh, here are the people that tremble at the word of God. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, but he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of the noise of the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that rendereth recompense to his enemies. Before she travaileth, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath, made, who hath seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall the nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Now, there's a lot that we could unpack there this morning. For sake of time, we're not going to. But God basically says, listen, there is coming a day, a new kingdom will appear on this earth, and Jesus will return, and with labor and travail, God will bring forth that kingdom. God will finish that which he starts. Look at verse number 9. Shall I bring to birth and not bring forth, cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb? saith my God. Beloved, God doesn't start a work that he does not intend to finish. You're here this morning and you're a Christian. So I remember when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I know if I die today, I go to heaven. But I feel so far from God. I feel like it's been a long time since I had a real true relationship with God. Listen, it's not God that's moved, it's you that's moved. And God fully intends to finish that which he started. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun, past tense, God began in the past, a good work in you will, present tense, perform it, future, until the day of Jesus Christ. Your relationship with Jesus is past, present, future. You're saved, he's working on you, and he will keep working on you. He will finish what he starts. For some individuals here today, maybe it's a desire to be freed from a specific sin or sins that you struggle with. For others, maybe God has placed a calling upon your life and you feel, I know God's called me to serve him and I want to serve him, but I just don't know how I'm going to, I don't know how it's going to happen. I want to serve him. 
I can remember when I was a teenager, I went to the Wilds Christian Camp as a junior, and at the end of the week, I felt like God was calling me into the ministry. And we had a long trip home from North Carolina, came through Virginia all the way up to New Hampshire. And I remember talking to my youth pastor in the front seat of the 15-passenger van as we were driving home, and I told him what the Lord had done in my heart that week. And he encouraged me. He said, you know, Barney, I'm going to get you plugged in and start, have you start preaching in the nursing home and preaching in youth group and doing Sunday school for the little kids. And that was all good. But he's like, don't get discouraged when you can't be a pastor tomorrow. He's like, in order to become a pastor, it takes a lot of work, a lot of preparation. It takes years of investment, of learning, of blood, sweat, and tears. Some of you have only been coming to our church for a little while. And yet you look around Faithway this morning and you see what God has done here with this building, with this people, with everyone who's here. You all have a story about how God brought you to our church. And it's through a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that God's people have have built the church, that God has built the church. And so you can easily get discouraged when you don't see the response that you want right away in your life. When God says, no, I don't want to answer the prayer that you have in your way. I'm calling on you to be patient, to wait on me. And what may seem like a detour, it may seem like a long way off, don't make a mistake this morning of thinking that God has forgotten about you or he's abandoned you. God is at work in your life. Continue on there in verse number 10. God says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her. All ye that love her and rejoice for joy with her. All ye that mourn for her. That ye may suck, be satisfied with the breast of her consolations. That, that uh, That ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. There's that song, I got peace like a river. Some of you know that song. That's where it comes from right there. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. So so God says in verses 10 through 13 that if you come to Christ like a baby who is satisfied with the milk of her mother, you will be satisfied with Jesus Christ as well. You will be blessed. We're almost out of time this morning. Would you look at verse number 17? That they that sanctify themselves and purify themselves in the garden beyond one tree in the midst, eating swine's flesh. Now, those of you who know the Bible and you know Jewish law, you know the Jews were not allowed to eat swine's flesh, right? It's just the Jewish people, God says, thou shalt not. By the way, the Bible doesn't tell the church, thou shalt not eat swine's flesh. That's why we have men's breakfast, breakfast with bacon. Lots and lots and lots of bacon because the Jewish people were not under the law, were under grace. And so we praise the Lord for that. But the people were making an abomination of sacrifices here. They, they were thinking that they could sanctify themselves by doing these hypocritical displays of religion. Only they turned around they disobeyed the Lord. And those who are outright pagans, God says at the end of verse number 17, they shall be consumed together, saith the Lord. The people who are hypocrites, they're going to be destroyed by God. I hate to say this, but they're probably in the church our size. There's probably at least someone who's a hypocrite. Someone who will come and stand before God one day and say, Lord, in your name I did wonderful things. In your name I changed light bulbs. In your name I swept the floor. In your name I preached. In your name I taught. In your name I did all these things for your kingdom. And yet God will look at you and say, depart from me for I never knew you. In other words, I never had a personal relationship with you. You've gone through all the motions of being a Pharisee. You're a hypocrite, but I never knew you. Depart from me into the lake of fire. My friend, I hope that's not you one day. Verse number 18. God says, for I know their works and their thoughts. God sees and God knows. A couple of weeks ago, one of my kids asked me about lie detectors. How does that work, Dad? 
I don't know. I, I'm not that geeky side of things, so I'm not exactly sure. I just know that they're not admissible in court. And so there's a podcast that the kids and I will listen to sometimes. It's called Stuff You Should Know and uh, put in a shameless plug for it. Most of the time, it's pretty good. And, and so anyways, it's, it's about how things work. And so I looked it up when we found the podcast about lie detectors. And so we start listening to it as we're driving down the road. And we actually learned some pretty cool things about lie detectors. And yes, they're not, only, not only are they not admissible in court, but did you realize that some people are very good liars? and they are able to trick the lie detectors. And there are some people, actually, I, I know an individual that had a very high-strung nervous system, and every time he would sit down for, to take his polygraph, he would fail the lie detector, because not because he was a liar, not because he was a horrible criminal, but just because of his physiological nature, the way that he, that he was wired by God. So they're definitely not foolproof. And, and you know, you look at the world out there, and there's really no way that, I know AI and different things are trying to read people's minds and hack into the brain, but there's really only one person who sees and knows everything that you're thinking, and that is God himself. Thou, God, seest me. Beloved, you can't hide from God. You say, well, if I have to thank God for the broccoli at dinner, does God know that I'm lying? Yes, he does. All right? So just be careful about that. Verse number 19, it says, And I will send a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them to the nations, to Tarshish and Pole and Lud and draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the house of Far that have not heard my fame. It seems to say that during the millennial kingdom, there in verse number nine, there's going to, 19 rather, there's going to be some sort of missionary activity going on to the children and grandchildren of those that have survived the great tribulation that do not know the Lord. In verse number 20, I want to draw your attention to one phrase. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord. They shall bring all your brethren for an offering unto the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Let's say that you have a, a lost, someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're lost. And you share the gospel with them. Oftentimes, we'll use the phrase in our Christian vernacular, I was able to help lead them to Christ. Now, you didn't save them, but as a friend, like, you know, the disciples, they, um, John, Peter brought John, I think it's who it was. You know, Peter brought Andrew to Christ. He brought him. He led them to Christ. That's kind of where we get the idea there. Well, in the millennial kingdom, you will literally be able to lead someone to Christ because Jesus will be on his throne in Jerusalem. Verse 22, one phrase there, and so shall your seed and your name remain. God is talking to the Jewish people there. God is not finished with the Jews. Heaven is forever, and so are the Jewish people. Verse 23, the phrase there that I wanted to point out, is so shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. Now this morning we sang some songs together, and I just absolutely love it when our church family in harmony and unison sings praises to God. It was amazing this morning. But worship is not just singing songs. I think some people don't quite get what worship truly is. Worship is about drawing near to God. It's about giving him all of your love and all of your adoration, all the praise that he deserves in his life. That's what worship is. I personally have a hard time imagining how a marriage could survive when there is not a great love that is cultivated between a husband and a wife. Now, I was blessed to grow up in a home where my mom and dad loved each other and even 40 years later, their love is just as strong as ever. You know, my wife and I do our best to try to keep our love fervent and strong. Um, even two weeks after our little baby was born, we kicked Emma out of the house last night. and We sent her over to the neighbors. Baby was sleeping and we had a candlelight dinner at our house, right? Why? Because we want to keep that love fervent and strong. We want to date each other and spend time together. And even though we may not be able to go out to a restaurant because we have to feed the baby all the time, we're still going to do what it takes to spend time together. In that same way that I pursue my wife and I date my wife after we've been married for 19 years, God wants you to pursue him, and God will pursue you. 
He wants his relationship with you to be like that of a good marriage. There ought to be closeness. There ought to be a sharing between a husband and a wife. And there ought to be a sharing between God and you. That's what takes place in a worship service on Sunday morning. It's not just a song service and then we have the preaching and then we're dismissed and we go home. No, it's a time in which you pour out your heart to God. It's a time for you to express your love for him. My friends, do you know what it's like to worship God in spirit and in truth? Verse 24 tells us there, and they, what a way to end the book of Isaiah, by the way. Look at this verse. I mean, if you were Isaiah, would you pick this way to end the book? I don't think I would, but this is the way God ends it. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of men that have transgressed against me. For their worms shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be abhorring unto all flesh. In other words... The people of Israel, or the people of God in the Millennial Kingdom, will walk outside of the city walls and they will see bodies of dead animals and criminals and people um, who have rejected God. It's going to be, in, in Jerusalem's day, there was the, va- the Valley of Gehenna. It was the valley or right outside this, the Dung Gate, D-U-N-G, Gate. There was the valley uh, that would con- constantly, there was a fire that was burning. Israel, all of Jerusalem would take their trash out the Dung Gate and there would be a perpetual, perpetual fire burning outside the city walls. And if the wind was blowing the wrong direction in Jerusalem, all of the city of Jerusalem would smell the refuse, the trash that was being burned. And so this is a very vivid picture. Everyone in Isaiah's day knew exactly what God was talking about. Isaiah is describing the reality of hell forever and ever and ever. My friend, four things about hell. Number one, hell is terrible. The Bible says, Jesus said that there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Someone says, well, hell is not a real place. Yes, it is. Hell is terrible. Hell is forever. The Bible tells us that hell is a place where the worm dieth not, neither is the fire quenched. Some groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses will teach a a doctrine called annihilation of the soul. That there is, once you die, that's it. That's the punishment that you'll get. I wish I could say that this morning, but that's not what the Bible says. Hell is forever. And you don't want anyone to go there. It's horrible. It's forever. It was intended for Satan. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says this, Then shall he say also unto the left hand, Depart from me, unto an everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's where Satan was supposed to go. But the person who refuses Jesus' offer of grace will also go to hell. But the fourth thing you need to know about hell, and this is the most important thing, is that God paid the perfect price for you to get out of hell. Jesus died on the cross. He took upon himself the penalty that should have been yours. And if you're willing to turn from your sins and ask God to help you and trust him for your salvation, trust him to forgive you of your sins, you can be saved from hell. This morning, if you're not saved, would you open up your heart to him? The final outcome, it's going to be one of two places, either heaven or hell. Eternal worship or eternal punishment. Where will you be spending eternity? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of scripture. And this warning that we see, but also, Lord, the promise of an amazing place that you've created for those that trust you and know you. And Lord, as we long for that place of utopia, that place where Jesus Christ reigns and rules, where there is no more death and no more sorrow and no more pain, we also, Lord, realize there are people all around us and maybe even someone sitting around us this morning who is not prepared to enter into heaven because of the sin in their life. Oh, Father, I pray today that they would know in their heart that hell is horrible, it's terrible, it's a place created for the devil and his angels, but, Lord, that you gave us a way to avoid eternal punishment, that we might have eternal life. 
Lord, if someone here today does not know you as their Savior, I pray right now that they would call out to you in their heart, that they would ask you to save them from their sins. And Lord, the cry of a person who wants to repent of their sin is a cry that you will hear and you will answer. And so I pray that they would do that today. This is Pastor Barney Schwenke from Faithway Baptist Church in Leesburg, Virginia. Thank you so much for taking the time today to listen to the sermon podcast. If there's any way that we can help you in your journey with God, please reach out to us. You can find more information on how to contact us at our website, faithwaybaptistchurch.com. May God continue to bless you as you seek to